Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello boys and girls and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. We are joined by two very, very special guests today. Gentlemen, reveal yourselves. So early in the day, really? (laughs) It is a pleasure to welcome aboard the gentleman from the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour, who are... Well, I'm Dr. Velvet. Are you all right? We're not doing too badly. And I'm Blackout. Hello. What are we watching today, gents? Well... We're watching, haha, brace yourself for this, The Tomorrow People, the original series, I stress, of The Tomorrow People, and an episode called Living Skins. Oh dear God. Before we do anything else, I think we might need to cushion the blow. Let's get the lid off the gin and open up the tonic screwdriver. Today we have, um, it's, a, it's quite a treat actually, it's a, a favourite of mine. It is Gordon's Mediterranean Orange Gin. It's 37.5% and the info bollocks is uh, remarkably scant. A refreshing-tasting, zesty orange gin, expertly made by pairing the classic taste of Gordon's with the delicious Mediterranean oranges, inspired by a 1929 Gordon's recipe made with only natural flavourings and colourings. Gentlemen, you know the drill, don't you? We do. More or less, I think. Very well. I've got a pint of it poured here. (laughs) You've got a pint of it? Yeah, I don't mess about with uh, with GNC. Well, you don't, no. Pint glass, filled with ice... Then just gin and tonic in it, half and half. That's how normal people do it, isn't it? Are we all drinking this completely differently? Dr. Exton has got a tumbler, which is... Uh, it, I've tried to do a roughly, maybe 60-40 mix for you. That's how you like it, with a cube okay. of ice. I've got a copa glass with lots of ice in it and, and lots of gin. There's at least a quad measure in there. Dr. Velvet? I've got a Slim Jim, and he's holding my glass. No, uh, I've got a, a Slim <laughs> Slim Jim Tumbler, with, uh, which is filled with ice, yes. And um, I would say it's about uh, two doubles, measure of gin, and the rest topped up with Marks and Spencer's Indian tonic water. Oh, we are not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> we're, right. we're roughing it with Aldi's tonic. Nice. Which is very nice. Nice. Yeah. I just want some free tonic water. <laughs> what are we uh, thinking of the nasal appraisal? How, what's coming out of the glass, sniff-wise? Kiora. Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth there, <laughs> Dr. Exton. Absolutely, yes. Bloody, I hate it when this you is, say this. I mean, I have said it about almost oh. every orange gin we've done. He's right. I just, <laughs> you're spoiling the magic. It tastes like Kiora. Yeah. Any gin and orange, or orange gin, tastes like gin and orange. Gin and cordial. <laughs> mm. Do we like it? Like I'm enjoying it? it. I'm enjoying it. I mean, uh, okay, if I'm going to get all... Jilly Goulden from BBC TV's Food and Drink programme. I'd say it's it's reminiscent of a summer morning in its sharpness and crispness. In fact, to summarise, it's like running through nettles in a shell suit. Do we need to up our game, Dr Exton? Because uh, your appraisal's better than ours. <laughs> um, I, with that description, frankly, I think we need to up our drugs. Well, I'm going to. St- this is one of my my go-to gins. I'm going to steam in here. I am giving it five out of five Bernards, gentlemen. What do we think? 
I'd give it a three. I mean, it, it's not it's not appalling, but um, I wouldn't do a cartwheel if someone hadn't handed me a bottle. Three out of five. Yeah, it's all right. I'd probably give it a, a strong three, borderline four, but gin isn't really my sort of field of expertise. So, you know, I'd quite happily drink a pint of this, which I'm about to do. A pint of gin. I'm so impressed with this. I'm, I'm going with a four as well. It, it's nice. I like Kiora. <laughs> <laughs> It's too orangey for crows, though. <laughs> All the great adverts from the 80s are just flooding back here. I think it's time that we took our glasses, gentlemen, and descended into the undergallery at Podcasting House and opened up the Black Archive. Well, in fact, actually, we've got a choice of three doors today. We have the Black Archive, which is all the lost TV and film, the gift shop, which is anything you'd like to see on DVD or Blu-ray that isn't out there, or the Imaginarium, where you can pick anything from the realms of fantasy and bring it to life. Which door are you going to choose? Mr. Blackout, go ahead. You go first. I've got a one which is half Black Archive, half Imaginarium, if that's okay. It's fine. I think we'll, we'll peek into the Imaginarium and see what's in there. What have you got for us this time? Well, there was an episode of You're Only Young Twice, which was written for its fourth season in 1981, titled Welcome Home, Mrs. Noah. Now, this was due to star Molly Sugden, reprising her role from the notorious Croft Lloyd sitcom of 1978, whereby she finally returns to Earth and is put into quarantine by the British government in Paradise Lodge. Unfortunately, the long-term effect of space travel means that gravity still doesn't apply to Mrs. Noah, so she's floating around the retirement home, causing all kinds of mishaps and misunderstandings. At one point, she secretly witnesses acts of professional misconduct carried out by the proprietor, Miss Milton. Now, this was scripted, but it was never filmed. Uh, Molly Sugden absolutely loved the idea, but Croft and Lloyd had a fallen out with the writers Pam Valentine and Michael Ashton, and they wouldn't release the character rights. But Sugden wanted to work with the pair so much that they went on to write That's My Boy, which of course features Molly Sugden as Mrs. Willis, the character alluded to in the very first episode of You're Only Young Twice. So it all worked out in the end. That is the episode I'd like to see made. I think they'd better. I'm, I'm going to dream about that. That does sound fantastic. Yeah, it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? It absolutely would. Just to see uh, Dame Peggy Mount's reaction to uh, to Sugden floating on the ceiling. I'd, I'd love to see that. Absolutely. I suspect yeah. it, it should be a large butterfly net. <laughs> there we yes, go. Let's, let's make this. <laughs> <laughs> One word, Kickstarter. Get love the crayons out and animate it. It can't be worse than Web of Fear 3. <laughs> yes, love it. I'm going to turn to the good doctor now, and uh, what would you, which door are you going to pick, sir? Uh, which one? Ah, we yes, we have, to, we have doubly doctored today. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Dr. Velvet, what would you like? Black Archive. Do you know I'm harking back to 1978? BBC Jack and Ori. Kenneth Williams was the storyteller. I desperately, desperately need to have copies of or see again the Agaton Sachs stories that were brought to life by Kenneth. Are we familiar with Agaton Sachs? Do you remember him? No. Dr. Axton? Nope, doesn't ring a bell. Tell us more. So, written by the Swedish author Niels Olof Franzen, Agaton Sachs is a quirky, he's Sherlock Holmes meets James Bond. And there are 10 books altogether. I read them in primary school. And since then, I've gone on to collect them. I've got them all on my shelf. But Kenneth, they always ask Kenneth in to do the storytelling for these stories. 
an animation was made in the 70s across in Sweden and they brought it across and it was dubbed by Kenneth Williams again for over here. It was shown quite a few times. I just fell in love with the whole world. Agaton Sax is unbeatable, but Kenneth Williams' voice just lends such a wonderful mood and tone to it all. As a nine-year-old, I was I was obsessed with this character, so I just love to see them again. And they need to be on TV at least once a week, constantly on a loop. There you go. <laughs> that sounds absolutely magical. It really is. And distilled nostalgia here. Well, Dr. Exton, where are you going to take us? I'm going to go into the Imaginarium. Keeping with the 1970s theme, but not keeping with the kids' programme and crap theme, I would like to see a full series of The Incredible Robert Baldick. Oh. Now... BBC made a, a pilot written by Terry Nation, um, which still exists and is fantastic. And the plan was for it to go on to a full series. I'm not sure why it didn't. It starred Robert Hardy as a Victorian gentleman of independent means who investigated weird stuff. The pilot was written by Terry Nation and investigated spooky goings-on at a ruined abbey, I think. It's um, been a while since we've done it, but yeah. It's a, some sort of ruined churchy mm. thing, anyway. This sounds fabulous. It's... As camp as fuck, um, it yeah. is, it's Robert Hardy chewing the scenery on a Terry Nation script with everything that both of those implies. It is a nice, incredibly entertaining little bit of, of television. I would love to see more of it. He has his own train. Yeah, it, it is a lovely premise, this, uh, this mobile laboratory on a railway line. It does sort of preclude where he can go in it, though. Well, not the <laughs> You could get to any mm. little hole in the wall place pre-beaching. Um, yeah, it's kind of Adam Adamant lives meets Karnaki. Yeah, it, it, Karnaki's the one that leaps to mind, yes. With a chunk of all creatures great and small thrown in because it's Robert Because Hardy. it's Robert Hardy. Who, there's a lovely anecdote on, I think it's the Legopolis DVD. Uh, there's an interview with Peter Moffat, the director, and he's... Uh, he says that Tom Baker was a lot like Robert Hardy and that one look in a morning you could tell whether your day was going to be a dream or an absolute nightmare. Nice. Yeah. I am going to uh, close the Imaginarium again and uh, take us into the gift shop. Sunshine, lollipops and green bows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. I was a big fan, in the certainly in the 90s and, and further on, of a radio series called Radioactive, which was um, uh-huh. the radio version of a TV comedy series called KYTV. And it starred Angus Deaton, Jeffrey Perkins, who else was it? Rebecca Front, was it? No, it was Helen Atkinson Wood and uh, Michael Fenton Stevens. Philip Pope. It was a great little ensemble and it was filled with sketches and recurring characters and uh, what I'm really turns me on is, is musical comedy 
and Philip Pope is he's very very witty and uh, an accomplished musician so he'd do skits on all the groups at the times he had things like Status Quid the Heebie Jeebies and he did all the voices and the, it, they were brilliant So, but that's never had a proper commercial re- release I think a couple are available on CD but not many but there were, this ran for years and there's about seven or eight series and specials and things so yeah. uh, is any, are any of you familiar with this? I am familiar with it I'd, I'd never heard it I've never heard a single episode, but I was aware of its existence. <laughs> and I know for a fact that Blackout's mind is rocketing um, at the moment. <laughs> but I'll tell you why. This is, it, it is bizarre. Long before the creation of that show, when Blackout and I were knee-high to a Star Wars figure, we would congregate in his bedroom when we were 12, 13-year-old, and with a wooden tape recorder, we would pretend we had our own radio station, and it was called Radioactive. Yep. So it's, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's quite emotional for us that yeah, but uh, never actually heard an episode of that. Anyway. I was more familiar with KYCV when it was on. I absolutely loved. I sort of probably should revisit it because I haven't seen it since back in the day. And with that in mind, yes, I would very much like to go back and go through Radioactive as well. I think that'd be a fantastic sort of companion piece to it. And he did the music for Who Dares Wins as well, and that's never had a, a proper commercial release. I was a big fan of that at the time as well. That sort yes, of felt like it was on that. too late for me. But, you know, I managed to sort of sneak my television on quietly at night and watch that. That was 10.30 Channel 4, wasn't it? Yeah, that was past my bedtime then. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Shouldn't we slam the door shut, gentlemen, and uh, go and watch some quality TV? We can only regret it. There's not really uh, anything else to do other than put on the waders and dive straight in because uh, I, I'm I've never seen this one. I know that you th- have you three all seen it before. Yes. Oh yes. Oh, ho, ho, ho. this was my first ever visit to the Tomorrow People at all. Now, back in the day when the original series was on, I was around and I was watching TV, but for reasons I can't explain. I've just never seen The Tomorrow People until I sat watching it for this very podcast. Whereas I remember watching it, um, the later series as transmitted, and the earliest one I can remember is Hitler's Last Secret. Have you by any chance seen that one? If you haven't, it's it's an experience. <laughs> isn't it just? Isn't it just? Yeah we, yeah, we decided that just for a bit of a laugh, we'd do that uh, very recently. And uh, just to put us in the mood, if, no, 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 no. There's, um, no, just, just no. <laughs> so for the boys and girls at home, if we just say a little bit about what The Tomorrow People was. Oh, yeah, that bit. Yeah, may as well. So it was a mid to late 1970s ITV low-budget science fiction programme, which was apparently supposed to compete with Doctor Who, but didn't have the production values to compete with things like Underworld. Um, <laughs> it tells the story of a changing cast of teenagers slash early 20s who developed telekinetic, telepathic, um, extra powers. And they regarded themselves as the next stage of human evolution. And they called themselves the Tomorrow People. They also had an apparently exaggerated moral compass, which meant that they couldn't kill anyone. And they were um, in contact with a group of extraterrestrials called the Galactic Federation or the Galactic Trig. And they helped the Tomorrow People set up their base. They gave them uh, an artificial intelligence computer called TIM. It gets 
the way it gets worse as it as it goes along. The first two or three seasons are pretty good. <laughs> By the time you're getting towards the end, there's some absolutely dire ones. Um, the final series is um, a thing called The War of the Empires, which is just beyond appalling. And the story before that was Living Skins, uh, the one that we're going to watch and then talk about. Yes. It gets worse the further it goes. I, I can't... How far are we in with this one that we're about to watch? This is the penultimate story. Lovely. This is the final story of season seven, and the only story in season eight was War of the Empires. Which was the very last one. Which is the very last one, and featured a lot of puppets and the wanking dustbins. Yes, it did. The wanking dustbins. Are you implying that by this point in the show's production, they had gone through the bottom of the barrel and were in the cellar? (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't stop at the cellar. Give my regards to the centre of the earth. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to pull the plug here and flush us down the drain into the Tomorrow People. Without further ado, Ron VT on the Tomorrow People, the Living Skins. Right, well, uh, that was a lovely two-part piece of drama. Uh, it was Episode one was a harmless fashion, and episode two was Cold War. It wasn't as shit as I thought it was going to be. It, really? It was fairly terrible. <laughs> the production values were... I mean, I've got reams of notes on this, but um, basically... On, they, there were production values? Well, <laughs> they... <laughs> They clearly had a lot of leftover zoot suits from something, and uh, they were the, the main alien aggressor in this was very thin, worn-out versions of those orange space hoppers you used to get in the 1970s. Yeah. Everyone looks like the, a backing singer from the Bay City Rollers. And the, uh, yes. the sort of the antagonist, the, the lead one looks like Gene Wilder spaced off his tits, and the rest of his henchmen <laughs> all look like they're out of Slade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this, this is all the, fair. Yeah, the the, the be permed staff member of, of <laughs> well, we 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 for, well. First of all, you know, I want to. I always do this um, on back on Peggy Mount. The, can I just talk about the theme tune here because it's absolutely spectacular. It is banging, isn't it? It's Deadly Dudley Simpson at his best here. Cracking theme music. Cracking. I dance to this. <laughs> I dance to this. I'm not even lying. Oh, God, you've not been at conventions that I've DJed for, have you? Because I, I do play this in the UFO theme tune to get people dancing. Oh, that's a must. UFO is a floor filler every time, <laughs> followed by Tomorrow People. We're in. Um, and have you heard the Power Themes 90 album where they remix all the ITC theme tunes as uh, 90s dance? Heard it, got drunk to it, danced to it, got laid to it. This is a must. <laughs> in, in <laughs> This, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Including the Avengers by Peel the Real. Uh, right. <laughs> I think you yeah. found a new level there. I thought I was uh, doing fairly well, getting laid to uh, the eve of the war. But no, you, you are... <laughs> now that's taking dramatics to another level. Fantastic. Fantastic. The eve of the war. I'll try that. Oddly enough, no, I, I, have no, I have notes on H.G. Wells as this goes on, but yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, 
The sta- there's lots and lots to talk about with this episode. The standout, though, the absolute standout, is suit and tie. The Japanese girl. What the fuck's she doing there? I don't think she knows. <laughs> Would it surprise you to know that this was her only acting credit? Really? She didn't go on to do bigger and better things? Not as an actress. I think what she's doing there is repeating the last line she learned phonetically 30 seconds before the director shouted, and go. God love her. She's, she's, that is you know exactly what, I don't what mind. we've said. I don't mind because she's clearly trying harder than the rest of the cast. That's fine. But, you know. Yeah, we know. And to be fair, at this point, should we talk about alumni? Because it's not going to be a long conversation. Misako Kobo, who plays Sutai, this was her only acting credit. Nigel Rhodes, who played Andrew, this was his last acting credit um, and previously had been in The Rocking Horse Winner and an episode of Ripping Yarns. Nicholas Young, playing John, this was his major thing. And other than this, he was in Kessler. He was in a couple of episodes of Space 1999 and they brought him back for the American version of The Tomorrow People. Mike Holloway... I think I can give him a different name. So Mike, playing Mike, <sighs> was in an episode of Minder and an episode of Teabag, and then mm-hmm. was brought back by Big Finish. I was just going to point out Mike Holloway's most important credit in his entire career. I'll cast your mind back to an episode of Pebble Mill at One, <laughs> <laughs> where Paul Shane is singing baby, You've Lost That Love and That's the one. And standing to his right is Mike Holloway. That's him? That's him. Oh, that is, that is uh, singing in the club style to the extreme. That clip is, uh, it's gone down in history. Yes, it has. Baby, baby! Um, well, he had, <laughs> and he had his, he was, was he drummer for a band, drummer and singer, so a bit like Dave Clark, but without the talent, called Flintlock. And he thought of himself more as a musician than an actor. And so did the rest of television. <laughs> One of the earlier um, Tomorrow People stories was about him raising a sort of Cthulhu entity by drumming really badly. Excellent. Starring, <laughs> starring Bella Remberg, no less. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's called Heart of Shoggoth, and it is awful. What on earth? <laughs> I would say it's worse than Living Skins. Oh, would you? Oh, fantastic. Excellent. Oh, it, it's really not good. Um, so where have we got to? Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Adair, not long after she finished The Tomorrow People, she quit acting completely to become a child psychologist, so trying to repair some of the damage that they'd done with these programmes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she had quite a, a busy career in the 60s. Her first acting credit was on Crossroads. She appeared in The Guardian. She appeared in Mandog and a, a lot of other things. Philip Gilbert, who is the voice of Tim and occasionally turns up as Timus, who is the real-world brain behind the, the computer, was in... Loads and loads and loads of stuff, but we have seen him in the fir- one of the very few surviving season one episodes of The Avengers, The Frightness. Ralph Lawson, Mr. Selling the Living Skins himself, this was his first acting credit. Was it also his last? No, he went on to Love in a Cold Climate. You do not, sir. What I like here is that Ralph Lawson is hands down the worst performer <laughs> as the shop assistant. And... I'm including Mike Holloway and all of the unnamed extras who just gurn into a fisheye lens in that assessment. Ralph seems to be channeling Richard O'Brien's riffraff as if he was condemned to leisure wear and not actually having a script to read. (laughs) 
It's absolutely insane. He's like, many people are buying bubble skin clothes, masters. How? There are only ever two of these suits on the shop's single clothes rail. You're, they're not even going to pay business rates, never mind take over the world. This is the worst alien invasion since H.G. Wells' Martians forgot to pack the Beecham's powders. Dreadful. Can I just say, though, what a, what a beautiful shop. What an absolutely beautiful shop that we first, you... when the episode first starts. If, if the Jetsons went into the fashion business, all hip-hop and the trendy and that, it's... this is absolutely beautiful. It's barking. It's, there are more stairs than a Bakerloo tube station. True. And there's only three racks of clothes where no two items are alike. Has no one in the production team ever bought clothes before? But there are bouncers in that shop. The only Who alumnus in the entire thing. No, actually, he's the guard in the second episode, but he, there is a Who alumnus. Who is? Dave Carter, who played extras in 20 episodes from the first episode of The Power of the Daleks to the final episode of The Android Invasion. Um, he was a Silurian, he was a Primord, he was a Roundhead. He was Sergeant Duffy in Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Greer's in the Android Invasion. And he also tips up in the dummy episodes of Beasts in Paul Dark, in Eskimo Nell, as the semi-regular Streboss in Vandervalk, and a load of other shit as well. But what was he in Living Skins? I need to know this. The guard in the factory in the second episode. A pivotal role. Amazing. That's that's cracking work, that. That is cracking yep. work. Almost as cracking as the flared denim slacks that Andrew appears in uh, when they first go into the shop oh. with, with, with these turnips. What's going on with the turnips? They're, those turnips, he comes out of this changing room and they're like, come, come, come on, Andrew, show, show us your outfit. He comes out with these turnips so deep that those trousers were originally cut for a stilt walker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. But Mike, Mike picks up an outfit from the rail, a living uh-huh. skin suit, which is clearly the predecessor of MJ's outfit from Thriller. This is the, that's the Thriller costume. That's a low budget version, obviously. It's ahead yeah. of its time in terms yes. of fashion. This program, the tomorrow. Well, I think that suit cropped up in a few productions because it was also in. And this is a bit of an obscure reference. Uh, a, a one scene in Beverly Hills Cop where Axel Foley's walking down the main road and they're wearing matching suits and they look just like that. There you you know what? I, I actually hope it's the same physical garment because <laughs> that would tell me that that would tell me that when production wrapped on living skins, they didn't immediately burn everything to the ground. <laughs> right. And to be fair, previously in the Tomorrow People, Mike's fashion sense has not been helpful. No, no, no it hasn't. <laughs> no, it hasn't. <laughs> no. For which I present the evidence of Hitler's last secret. It does get yeah, worse, though, yeah. when they get back to Tomorrow People HQ, because uh, Tim is sort of gliding about like a, a smart-ass drinks trolley, just dispensing sarcasm. And mm-hmm. then when they try to get the suits off, I don't know whether it's sexism or, or what, but the, uh, when they strip Mike off, there's a gratuitous cock shot and uh, some horrifically unevenly hairy legs, while the rest of him smooth as a baby's ass. But then when they do the girls, they get the, the zoot suits off them, they've got uh, leotards. Uh, but Elizabeth Adair, unfortunately, the angle of the camera, it gives her a, a very, very prominent camel toe. <laughs> you know what? I'm glad we're on the same page with this. I love that there's been a meeting and someone's gone, and then we see the teenagers in their pants. Don't worry, it's science fiction, so everything's above board. We definitely <laughs> need shots of all of them in these 
sky blue thermal undies and that let the camera linger on them. <laughs> and, and let's be honest, in the history of the Tomorrow People, it's not the only time we get to see teenage boys in their pants because there's loads of them in Worlds Away. I definitely can't watch any more episodes of this then. I'm just off the register as it is. <laughs> and then there's... there's should we mention Peter the Guardian of Time and his dress? Who, 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 who? Oh, of course. That's actually quite an entertaining episode. We'll do it at some point. A, a rift in time. It's a second season episode. Yeah, you're taking me back now. It's such a long time since I've looked at this. It's such a long time. Good grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've done a few Tomorrow Peoples recently. Mainly the crap ones, because I think it's hilarious to watch Ken's reaction. Oh, did... I'm, I'm just glad that there is drink involved to cushion the blow, because I didn't think there was a a lower level of production values than Underworld, then it turns out there is. And uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> how long should we let this run for? A couple of episodes, a couple of seasons? No, how about nine years? Well, well done for stretching this out. This makes Button Moon look like it was done by ILM. <laughs> it's honestly... Having said that, oh, my. good production yeah. values don't necessarily guarantee you a good series. Well, Blake 7 stands to reason. Oh, he's he's itching to do this, boys. He wants to crowbar it in a Star Maidens reference. I'm, I'm gonna go on off. Go on, boy. Off you go. Off the leash. Go on. Stretch your legs. What have you got for us this time? Star Maidens. It Star had, Maidens. Had, it had really good production values, and it was shit. Oh, it's, have you two been exposed to this yet? No. No. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that's. <laughs> yeah, go, go and enjoy, but don't expect to be able to stomach more than two episodes. If you can imagine a sort of space abba. Mixed with, <gasps> I'm there. Mixed with yeah, the worm, worm that turned. Uh, that sort of that's the the level you're aiming for. Oh, with a touch okay. of Blake Seven. Oh, I'm there. I'm there. Of Space 1999. We have two copies of this on DVD that are going spare. <laughs> I mean, this is just. I mean, do, are there any cardigans in that similar to there that are, uh, Space there are 1999? Cardigans, there are cravats. There are headscarves. There are a large number of late 70s German slacks. I've written this in a former life. This is tremendous. Blackout. We've I got think to get this is what case. we do. I think this is what we do when we finish our time machine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, My well, goodness. <laughs> you know that, um, that wine cocktail that you were drinking in your uh, Halloween special? Yeah. Yeah. Drink a lot of that before you start. Excellent. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can we skip back to that bit where they're trying to take the shell suits off of like <laughs> off of anyone who's wearing it? I love that when this was written, Roger Price has gone, and then we'll have some kind of clever effect to show the suits literally sticking to their skin, yeah? And then on the day of filming the director's just gone, Oh fucking no, just pretend to pull it a bit. Let me know what you about it. It's fine. Absolutely atrocious. That bit did let it down a little bit. Uh, yes, it's welded to her skin, and um, it, it clearly isn't. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's, very, Mike's very dismissive about the whole notion that these suits are alive, isn't he? Because he's a cock cheeky chappy, uh, rebel rock and roller, in his, in his completely earnest acting style. <laughs> Mike has the sort of the air of a cheeky market trader on EastEnders who's on his best behaviour because the stall inspector's about to come round. Yeah. He is the sort of young lad that you'd never get fed up of punching as hard as you can in the face. <laughs> See, I'm a guest. I didn't want to say that, but yes. Yeah. 
that voice, that whiny, whiny, cockney voice that he uses over and over for every... For, to, to quote from yourselves, gentlemen, at some volume, he shouts every line. Right. <laughs> it's more the fact that he spends half the episode touching himself. Um, Sue Tai. Sue Tai agrees with him, of course, in his dismissive approach to this. I mean, I think she does. I can't understand the word the woman's saying. But <laughs> she, 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 um, she does. But, um, yeah. Well, the Sue Tai source of there is the, the cast member that's basically the echo function on a mixing desk. Because everything that somebody says, she just feeds back about three seconds later on. But less yes. intelligible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that. She's another. Well, she doesn't get a camel toe. She she's uh, she's in a, a charming. Is she does she get the blue leotard or the green one? I can't remember. If memory serves, she gets a blue leotard, which is absolutely screaming for the CSO treatment. Sorry, guys. I'm just, I'm just now picturing <laughs> these disembodied arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, with a nice relaxing pastoral scene projected. So so far, we have tiptoed gently, gently tiptoed around the elephant in the room. As someone who's never seen this program before, mm. can I take a moment to ask what the living fuck is going on with Andrew? Is his kilt explained in earlier episodes? Yes. He's, yes, right, he's, from, okay, Scot- he's okay. from Scotland. Obviously. Right, okay. There you go. That's, that's it's it. A, it's a combination of that and his sweater and that crash helmet hair he's got mm. and that weird sort of girl's face. It felt like Andrew was being played by Glenda Jackson, who was also a 12-year-old Hillary Swank. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He went on after the show to be um, part of the heavy metal goth rock punk. So I gather, looking, uh, sort of flicking through Google (laughs) with his name, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Was this his second story, I wonder? I think it... Was it? I can't Uh, remember. It's either second or uh, third. Third, right. There was the story that introduces him in the hotel where he's conjuring ghosts. And then there's yeah. aliens check into the hotel for some very, very sub-faulty towers, apparent humour. And then there's Living Skin. Yeah. And then he's War of the Empires, where he spends quite a chunk of it pretending to be American, unsuccessfully. Yes. I mean, in defence of his character development, he's shown at one point reading a newspaper, and the audience sees uh, the Bruins, so, which means he's basically reading the Sunday Post. That's, That's right. how Scottish he is. I love that. <laughs> yes. He's re- he's re- at that point, he's reading um, Paul Coyer on Pop. He's yes. That <laughs> yes. Definitely. Um, a, but, yeah. a mention has got to go here to the name of the aliens in this thing, the Ball Boys. Good lord. Yes. They yes. must have been awake all night coming up with that. Absolutely. What is that about? A cellar full of balls. Tempest television in these, its prime. We sort of see these bubbles on a cutaway shot, an animated shot of these bubbles drifting towards our planet. And I think, well, if the Earth is populated by about 70 people, we'll be right in the shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what those balls look like? You know when you go to the optician and you get like that eyeball scan? Yeah. It's that. It's that brought to life. <laughs> you know when they show it on the camera? They can travel the cosmos in their bubble form, but they need to be picked up from rye slip in a horse box. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. By Slade. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> 
Oh, I think it, there was the fact is that when they're in the cellar and all the the balls are thrashing about, uh-huh. they've not even bothered to disguise the extras that or the the crew that are bouncing the balls around. You can see them quite clearly. Fatly, <laughs> yeah, they're just kicking the hell out of them. The length of the studio to move them around. <laughs> Go on. Should we make any effort to disguise that? They're not going to be in shot, are they? Nah. And there they are, just booting the fuck out of these things. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll cut to a little aesthetic, by the way, because this is full of aesthetic, this show. It really is. And I'm very impressed, actually, when we... When we see a shot of Sue Tai when she's been escorted back to her bed in her little apartment in the Tomorrow People villa, her duvet and pillow set is ne- clearly some merchandise from The Shining. I love it. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's definitely the scariest thing in the entire two episodes. Yeah. Love it. Love it. When they do finally wrap up this interminable plot, there's right at the end, Elizabeth's in bed. Right at the start of uh, of episode one, John's got a cold. Now, again, harking back to H.G. Wells, you know that this is going to be a plot point. And lo and behold, it is. Uh, that's your, There's your mm. deus ex, guys. Uh, we've, we've done that in scene one. But the plot is resolved by giving everybody in the world a cold. Spoilers, kids. Sorry. I think it would be more interesting if Robot Tim had been like, it appears that the suits cannot bond with anybody who's got the clap. <laughs> I have designed a chlamydia gun (laughs) set to wide scatter and maximum penetration. You get towards the end and someone's gone, Roger, there's 10 quid left in the budget. How can we make people look like they're infected by aliens? And he's gone, I don't know, three quarts of Marvin medium? Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it, yeah. There is the most brutal friend-zoning ever committed to film, though, right at the end. Elizabeth's in bed, the only one with any talent in the whole thing, uh, Elizabeth Adair. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Agreed. One of her, uh, I think her last line is, All things considered, I wouldn't want John to give me anything else. You have been very much sidelined. You are in the friend zone there, John. Uh, no camel toe yes. for you. <laughs> um, yes. and, well, let's be honest, she's not wrong. He is a personality vacuum. Uh, she's way out of his league, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He sort of comes across as Giles Brandreth's older brother. I didn't mind him. He's a nutty dresser for the time. <laughs> oh, he is. Mind you, he has some t- stiff competition from Mike at some point in episode two because Mike is wearing a beautiful bottle green jumper and some elegant tan slacks. Um, <laughs> that the, they, they are particularly cutting edge. Well, all the way through, I was expecting them to break into Shang Lang or something. It was they were it, it was yes. that sort of yeah right. Yeah, well, again, um, we've um, we seem to have skipped over the actual uh, what do you call it? sort of like the the centerpiece, literally in the middle of the two episodes, the finale of the uh, the first <laughs> yes, half of this yes. duology. I was on the edge of my seat here, where I'm thinking, did Ray Bradbury write this episode? Has he gone? And then, right, the small Scotch girl boy has a fight with a haunted bin bag. That's what was missing from Star Wars. <laughs> what? The living fuck was going on. They, they just thought, just lift the suit up on a bit of fishing wire. That, that'll be the same as... We can't afford the CSO. We've spent all of that on their leotards. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, what an ending. What an ending. It's so special. insane. So special. You've got to give it to the cast, though. They actually made it through to the end with a straight face. All of them. Well, 
as straight as you can, apart from the the mad-eyed, ripped-to-the-tits Gene Wilder rip-off, who uh, was just wild. I mean, if you'd walked into a clothes shop and somebody stared at you like that, you'd uh, be out. Yes. <laughs> Would you like to buy one of the suits? Oh, I take it you've never been to the Gateshead Metro Centre, then? <laughs> Oh, in, oh, Gateshead. Sorry, should, is that somewhere I should go? No, it really, no, it really isn't. No, it really isn't. No, no offense to Gateshead if you're listening. Absolutely not. Lies. I used to go to a fantastic pub in Gateshead when I lived up there, the Railway Arms, and it yes, always. I know where that is. And it was about the only place that used to do real cider. Bear in mind, this was sort of mid '90s. They had a jukebox, and one of the things they had on their jukebox was Einstein a Go Go by Landscape. Hmm. I'm just impressed they had a jukebox in a lot of pubs. To be fair, Gates, I don't think they installed a jukebox it, and it's on somebody's in somebody's living room the day after. But yeah, yeah. I don't think a decent cider and a jukebox that's got a record that you've already got forgives the rest of Gateshead. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, after, after the first time we played it, the volume was was very conspicuously put right back back to zero. <laughs> yes. No. I I I have to stress. I do I do jest. Um, Gateshead is a lovely place. It is a lovely place. <clears throat> I was born in Newcastle, so I can say what I like. Uh, <laughs> um, so we've, we're sort of getting to the point where we need to wrap up this ve- televisual feast. Uh, have we got any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Dr. Velvet, what do you think? Have you got any final thoughts for us? I mean, the Tomorrow People is what it is, okay? We can pull it apart as much as we like. It had a certain charm. I discovered this quite late on. I didn't watch it back in the day. I was made aware of it. I, I wasn't even aware of its existence uh, until very late on. And I have to say, the original series is up there in my top three of British sci-fi. Doctor Who's number one, Blake Seven's number two, and number three is The Tomorrow People, largely because of the premise. It isn't executed well, but you know what? It's a bit of fun. Bring it on, I say. Homo superior all the way. Dr. Exton. God, there's a music quote in there that I don't really dare use. Um, this was rubbish. It was entertaining <laughs> rubbish. Um, now, as regards to the Tomorrow People as as a whole, the original plan was for it to finish after Series 3, and there's a really natural break point at the end of Series 3 where all the Tomorrow People are incapacitated. There's a new Tomorrow person who's having a lot of adjustment problems, and they all disappear off to the galactic trig to recover themselves and they leave the earth without tomorrow people and that would be a really natural end to it and the really bad stuff comes when the the producers have obviously gone well we don't have anything else so roger back you come and all the terrible stuff comes after that there's actually some really good stuff in those first few seasons the blue and the green is excellent the medusa strain is very good so i'm kind of using this as a as a torture for Ken, because I'm showing him all the terrible ones. Mm-hmm. But at some point, we will get to one of the early ones that's actually pretty good. Well, I am coming to the Tomorrow People brand new. I never saw it on uh, first transmission. I've never seen it since. Uh, Dr. Exton is very kindly. Uh, there was a hump on the uh, doormat not long ago. The complete series on DVD. A little more detail than anybody needs. Oh, well, it, it was a considerable less pleasure than anything else that it might be euphemistically attributed to. But I am now am the proud owner of a complete Tomorrow People DVD box set. Uh, I'm sure I'll be ploughing through all the shit ones uh, as we go along. But I'm going to leave the final word to Mr. Blackout. What, what have you got to wrap us up with? Well, if someone had said to me before this, 
Envision, if you will, a British version of the X-Men, whatever thought would have flashed into my mind, good or bad, would have adequately described it. Uh, it certainly <laughs> kept me engaged, but it's horrendous, and I shudder to think what the previous six and a half series were like. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sort of with you on that. I, I didn't think it wasn't as terrible as I expected, but it was, it was still fairly bad. Uh, but on that note, gentlemen, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode, but we will all be back next time uh, when we are watching another Tomorrow People story, but this time we're skipping forward a couple of decades to the 1990s. So we shall be back in the next edition with the boys from Peggy Mount. I have been Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. I've been Dr. Velvet. I've been Blackout. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We shall see you all next week. Bye now. Kaboom. Bye. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.